Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So, um, we're going to go around around the room. I want to hear your uh, your homework reports, but um, just briefly on John and meditation. I know in the in the book. I hope it's not confusing uh, because in the if you're if you're I don't even know if I change. I always refer to what the Buddha taught as shamatha vipassana meditation. And about four years ago, I changed the reference to jhana to more clearly um, define what the Buddha meant by meditation. Jhana means concentration. So the Buddha taught meditation for that sole purpose, to deepen meditation. So I, I changed the, the reference to jhana. So when you're reading Shamatha Vipassana, it, what I'm talking about is jhana meditation. Um, I just lost someone. So... The, the Buddha studied with the most foremost so-called spiritual teachers of his time, much like we were all doing, too, much like I did uh, before I came to realize what the Buddha actually taught. And he rejected all of those teachings as not leading to his goal, and very specifically, their meditation methods that they prescribed and what are normal today are really just a, a practice of distraction and that's exactly how he described it so he rejected that as saying it didn't lead to his goal of deepening his concentration so that he could hold in mind what it really means to be a human being so the buddha taught jhana meditation he never taught anything else he didn't teach uh, walking meditation or body scan meditation or singing meditation or sky gazing meditation or anything else and the only reason for that is that he taught meditation to deepen concentration and when you think about the quality of mind that we all brought to our practice it's a quality of mind that is prone to distraction isn't it another word for that is always grasping after or craving for something to be different including our own thoughts so Siddhartha Gautama realized this method of deepening our concentration and calming our mind so that we can be present with our life as our life occurs, period, period. That's why we do jhana meditation and no other method. I don't engage in a meditation method to escape who I am, to analyze where feelings or thoughts come from, or for any other reason, to have a magical or mystical experience. For years and years and years, I believe that that was what meditation was for, that it was to have some type of magical or mystical experiences, experience, and I had plenty of them, and I self-validated them, thinking that I'm, I'm actually generating something within me that is of value. All that I was doing was wasting my time. I was distracting myself by the methods I was using. Pure jhana meditation does not allow for distraction when it's done correctly. And so as you continue the course, I'm asking you to just do jhana meditation. If you have other meditation methods, that's fine. You can pick them up again in 10 weeks. But if you want to find the benefit of jhana meditation, please keep to the method. And so next week, we're going to learn the four foundations of mindfulness, but that we're already practicing right now. 
The four foundations of mindfulness, as taught in the Satipatthana Sutta that you'll be reading next week, uh, the, the primary sutta on the four foundations of mindfulness, teaches what to do in meditation. But meditation and mindfulness are two different, two different things, aren't they? Meditation is a technique for deepening concentration. Mindfulness is the act of applying that technique, applying concentration. And it's very specific. As we continue with the course, the very specific mindfulness that the Buddha taught was to be mindful of the Eightfold Path. All the other applications of mindfulness, such as being mindful when you're washing your dishes, or being mindful when you're walking, or being mindful when you're sky gazing, those are all good things to do. It's good to be mindful as we're living our lives, but they have nothing to do with what the Buddha taught. In other words, the Buddha never taught walking meditation. He didn't teach any type of body scan meditation. Again, he taught meditation for the sole purpose of deepening concentration. And then it is from that, that well-concentrated mind that we're able to live our life moment by moment with the refined mindfulness that's found in the Satipatthana Sutta that you'll study next week. And what that simply means as Dhamma practitioners is that we're holding in mind the tenets of the Eightfold Path. And again, we're going to get deeper into this in week four, five, and six, breaking the Eightfold Path down. But a wise Dhamma practitioner lives their life from right view. And right view incorporates all eight factors of the Eightfold Path. And I understand that for many of you, this is um, unfamiliar verbiage, but you'll understand this as we go along. I'm laying the foundation for what you'll be learning in the next uh, nine weeks. So as wise Dhamma practitioners, we live within the framework of the Eightfold Path, which means that moment by moment, I see myself and my life as it unfolds in a completely impersonal way. I found a way through Siddhartha Gautama's teaching from 2,600 years ago to not take anything in my life personally. That's the key to peace and happiness. Because as soon as I take anything personally, I've lost my mind. And I mean that in a literal sense. I'm now thinking and seeing myself in relation to the world in a way that has no no resemblance of reality. Life is not a personal thing. Human life is to be lived mindfully, mindfully of aware of what's occurring moment by moment. And that takes a well-concentrated mind, and it takes a mind that does not need for anything to be different in this moment. That might sound like a pretty radical statement to some of you, because most of us live our lives evaluating what's occurring. I like this, I don't like that. I want this to happen, I don't want that to happen. I want more of this. I want, I want three pieces of chocolate cake rather than one piece of chocolate cake. I want a brand new Ferrari tomorrow. I want my friend to love me more. I want my dog to smile more often. All of these conditions we put on our lives. I want my Dhamma practice to be different than it is. These are all conditions that we place on our own happiness, our own peace. The Dhamma is the Dhamma. Our lives are our lives. Our friends are our friends. Life as life unfolds is simply what it is. But as soon as I need it to be different than it is, I've lost my mind and I've lost my life. So the Buddha taught a radical way of reclaiming our mind through jhana meditation and so through the Eightfold Path, reclaiming and actually having the possibility to live our lives.
When the Buddha describes his own awakening, and he does this in many different suttas, he's, he all consistently says, there's nothing left within me to provoke further ignorance. Nothing left within me to provoke further ignorance. That means we have become empty of ignorance of what? The primary purpose of the Buddha's Dhamma is to end ignorance of Four Noble Truths. Excuse me. So, when I'm referring to ignorance, I'm referring to that very specific ignorance. Ignorance of Four Noble Truths. And Excuse me. Somebody's just joining us again. So, the, the, the Four Noble Truths are very simple. And why do we call them noble? Because they're true in relation to the Dhamma. In other words, these four truths relate to the Dhamma where other mundane truths do not. Such as I'm looking out my window, it's a beautiful day here in New Jersey, Pennsylvania. It's a beautiful blue sky. That's true. The sky is blue right here in Pennsylvania. It has. It's not a noble truth because it doesn't relate to the Dhamma. A blue sky or a gray sky has no bearing on whether I can awaken. These four noble truths are noble because they relate to awakening, to full human maturity. Stress occurs. That's the first noble truth. The word it's often used is dukkha. I'm sure you've all heard it. Dukkha occurs. It's a very simple statement. And nowhere does the Buddha elaborate on that statement. Why? Because he's simply saying that as a consequence of having a human life, dukkha will occur. Stress will occur. You can, we, we can elaborate on that, and the Buddha does. He describes dukkha as this way. Birth is dukkha. Meaning, simply having a, a human life is stressful. Sickness is dukkha. Sickness is stressful. Aging is stressful. Not getting what is desired is stressful. Getting what is undesired is stressful. And then the Buddha would always conclude this statement about dukkha as, in this way, saying, in short, the five clinging aggregates are stressful. And we're going to get into that in week six, I think. Uh, the five clinging aggregates simply describe the ongoing personal experience of suffering. It means that we are taking our lives personally when we should not be taking our lives in any personal way. And that is what the Dhamma develops within us. It, it develops jhana meditation to the point of concentration where we're able to see our lives through the perspective of right view. And there's nothing personal. So, I, I, again, I'm talking in rather uh, broad concepts in this first class. But what I'm doing, again, is laying the foundation for what you're going to be learn, learning uh, further on. And this will all fall into place as we continue to practice. So now I'd like to um, hear, what your, uh, hear your homework assignments. I'm going to put these goggles on. I'll explain to them. For those of you that don't know <laughs> what these are, uh, these allow me... Hold on a second. got to get the right... Ah, it's not working. There it is. So I have macular degeneration, which um, means eventually I'll be completely blind. But right now, uh, I can't see detail. So in other words, I can't read the, the names on the screen. I can't really see your faces. So the reason why I put that on is just so I can do that. I don't mean, I know it can be off-putting to some people. You wonder, you know, what's this crazy guy doing with these goggles on? But that's the reason why. So uh, I'm going to use them as I call you and talk to you, but I'll, I'll take them off when I need to. Um, Meg, how are you? How was your meditation session and how what what do you have in your homework?
Uh, you're still muted, Meg. Okay. There you are. <laughs> okay, so I read the first chapter, and um, it um, kind of brought me back to something I learned in the first half of my life. I had a lot of difficult experiences and things that I had a really hard time figuring out. And, you know, I came to a place in where I realized that nothing that I knew already was helping me mm. figure things out. Yeah. And so I had, to, I had to just finally say, okay, I give up. I let, I'm letting go of the need to figure this out because I don't know what it is anyway. Yeah. And so, so it was a, like a process of letting go. And eventually I started to learn that everything seemed to be a process of letting go. You yeah, know? And, and uh, so it was kind of a... Um, a bit of a revelation to me that it seemed like a lot of my life was about letting go um, of the need to, to, to think that I knew the answers to everything. And, but the thing that I didn't really learn is how to do that in a daily, on a daily basis, if mm. that makes sense. And, yeah. and, and so that's what I, what I realized that um, I'm learning here through meditation and through um, studying a lot of this stuff, and and that is basically that letting go is a process, yeah. And it's a process of of um, letting go of attachment to the idea that um, that I need to do something at any given moment, yeah, yeah. because I don't. <laughs> That's right. And it's it, and it seems like through letting go of the need to do something then answers start to come. So it kind of gives rise to this um, discernment, yeah. uh, this ability to, to begin to discern. But I can't do that when my mind keeps telling me I, you know, I have, that's to, do right. this, I have to do that. Yep. So, so that's basically in a nutshell. <laughs> that, that, that's brilliant, Meg. The, 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 whole, the whole point of the Dhamma and I, I mentioned it earlier, is to empty ourselves of ignorance, which is another way of saying letting go of all the fabricated beliefs that I developed by living in the world, the things that are not me. The, the Buddha, the, the, we're going to be, we'll be starting our Vipassana study later on this year. Vipassana meaning introspective insight into the three marks of existence, the impermanence of all things, Anicca, the misunderstanding of self, Anatta, and the resulting Dukkha. So the Buddha taught that, used that word Anatta to describe human beings who live their lives not knowing who they are. And so we are letting go of all these fabrications and simply coming to the realization that what it means to be a human being is to be is to live at peace moment by moment as life occurs. But the key to that is that we have to do that. We have to have the ability to actually be in this present moment. And that's what the Buddha taught. So thank you, Meg. Uh, let me put my goggles back on so I can read. Oh, wait a minute. Franziska, how are you? Am I saying your name correctly? Yes, yes. Franziska, or yes. It's Franziska. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Actually, my mind is going a bit in circles right now. I have lots of thoughts, and it's a bit difficult from time to time to put them into words. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, lately my practice wasn't very um, 
it's consistent. I think I meditated the last three days in the mornings. And um, what I actually found out was that this consistency, I think, is one of the keys of yes. the whole thing. Yep. Because I also am um, teaching yoga classes, Ashtanga yoga, which also is eight um, paths which are included in that practice. And um, yeah, I found out that if I'm not practicing myself, then there's nothing to teach. There's nothing to, to give to anybody or mm. to share. So um, yeah, I think the consistency is key. Mm. Um, it, meditation practice. Yes, Francesca, it, it, consistency is key. Um, and consistency is more important than length of time spent meditating. In other words, I teach every one of my students that if you're just starting out with meditation, five minutes is plenty of meditation, providing you do it twice a day. So that, that twice a day is much more important than length of time. So I would encourage you to do that. Um, I'm, how, how, how long are you meditating for now? Um, well, it's been on and off the last years. I think maybe in total three years, mm -hmm. but yeah, on and off. And, um, <clears throat> then from time to time, I think, oh, I got it. I understood everything. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm so calm. I feel so good. I don't have to do it anymore. <laughs> then I let go and, and everything yeah. goes crazy again. So, yeah, I think I just should keep going and um, yeah. restart every time Every time I, I drop the practice. Yeah, that, yeah I, I was asked a question by a student a couple of years ago now, and it, it was, it was he, they were beginning their practice. Um, but the, the question was interesting. The question was, why did the Buddha keep meditating after he awakened? And I had to think about that for a few minutes. I never thought about it before. But of course, he would continue to meditate because that's how he maintained a calm and peaceful mind, didn't he? And so we, we are doing the same thing. There's nothing magical about this. Uh, getting back to, to time and consistency, uh, whatever your, your meditation time is, whether it's five minutes or 20 minutes or 30 minutes, it's much more important that you do it twice a day than a length of time. The reason why I'm saying that is if, if you're now meditating for, say, 30 minutes a day, but only doing that once, break it up into two 15-minute sessions, and you'll, you'll see the benefit almost immediately. And everyone I've ever talked to has said the same thing. I've, I've talked to people who have been meditating for 30 years, but one session a day. And to the person, they, when they broke it down into two sessions, they saw immediate benefit. So... That, that's another key to this Dhamma practice is to, is to meditate twice a day and gradually increase your time. You, you may wonder how long do I meditate, the, this grand meditation master? I'm not. Uh, I meditate for 30 minutes twice a day and I've been doing that for years. And this is what I learned through the Buddha's Dhamma. Every now and then I might decide that I'm going to sit for an hour or two and I, I do that occasionally. But my regular normal practice is 30 minutes twice a day and it served me very well. There's, I, I've read a lot of what the Buddha taught. I've read many of the suttas. And nowhere, nowhere have I found the Buddha saying, you should meditate for X number of minutes. He consistently says, go find the root of a tree or an empty hut, meaning go find a quiet place and do jhana. That's the Buddha's instruction. So thank you, Francisca. Uh, I've got to put these back on so I can see. Who's up there? Mark, how are you? John, you're really good. Um, yeah, thanks. It's um, 
I think it's, it's a little bit related to what Meg said, actually. And I, I like I like meditation. I think a big part of it is because there's nothing going on. Um, mm. When I've tried to take, especially over the last couple of weeks, and we had Christmas cancelled here, and obviously family upset. So it's there's one part of letting go and not trying, but when things come up like a challenge, for instance, um, that might invoke an emotional reaction, and then you're trying, or well, I was trying to not step into it. So is it? Mm. I'm struggling to discern the difference between being non-emotive and non-reactive and stoic almost. As in, yep. if I'm not going to take things personally, where does the re- is there a reaction at all? Is it, is, can anything send you plus or minus? Are you trying to sort of remain in the middle? Yeah, it's, it's such a great question, Mark. And it also shows uh, your own um, insight into where we're going with this Dhamma. So when we stop taking things personally, our mind no longer reacts, but we're in a much better position to respond mindfully. So in other words, an, an, an awakened, fully mature human being has not lost the ability to feel or even evaluate those feelings. In fact, it's just the opposite. So an awakened, fully mature human being feels whatever is appropriate in the moment without the need for that to be any different than it is. And that changes everything. So when when we hear that um, a good friend has passed away, we don't laugh about it as Dhamma practitioners. We're, we're, we're saddened because that's the appropriate feeling to have. But we don't need the feeling to be any different. And we don't get into a, a whole list of judgments about well, you know, the SOB shouldn't have smoked so much or anything else we might think of in that situation. We're simply present with life as life occurs. And so the, the emotion is not something that is, is flowing from a reactive mind, but it's something that is engaged with from a human mind, from understanding what it means to be a human being. And, I, and that, that changes everything. Each and every moment of our lives as we, as we develop awakening, becomes meaningful, not because of what is occurring. It's meaningful because it is occurring and it's occurring in my life. And I, I hope I, I explained that well enough, but that's something that you will all develop as you continue to go along. Uh, things that in your life that seemed um, completely mundane and unremarkable will become mundane but remarkable because you're actually experiencing them. And that changes everything in life, so. Uh, was that helpful, Mark? That was really helpful. Thanks, John. Good. Thank you. Um, sorry about this. I need to keep doing this so I can call on you. Jordan, how are you? Hey, yeah, I'm good, thanks. Um, enjoyed that. I just had two things I wanted to say. The first was about on the, on the meditation. Every time you said, notice your thoughts passing, your, your thoughts arriving and passing, I always watch them pass, but I could never see them arrive. Yeah. They just were there. And I don't know if that's good. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up, because there is a process there. The, the, when we're... Jhana meditation is both metaphor and the practical experience of an awakened human mind. In other words, 
our life is constantly arising and passing away. That's how life is. That, that relates to, the, to Nietzsche, the impermanence of all things. So when we are engaging in jhana meditation, in the meditation method that the Buddha taught, that simple act of being mindful of our breath, bringing our, bringing our focus on our breath and our body, unites the mind in our body and takes it away from being scattered out there in the past or in the future. And so it is a direct experience of the arising and passing away of all phenomena. And as we deepen that level of jhana, then the things that arise, the, the, the practical things that arise and pass away in our lives become just another expression of that level of concentration. It's just another arising and passing away. So, Jordan, as you get deeper into your meditation, you are going to start noticing the arising of feelings and the arising of thoughts, and in your, in, which means then you'll also be able to follow the whole cycle of the arising and passing away of all phenomena. And that's the importance of it. It's not, it's not so much whatever my, my feelings are in this moment or my thoughts about those feelings are in this moment are not really what's important. In fact, they can be a distraction. What's important is that I'm present for the arising and the passing away of my feelings and thoughts. Is that clear to everyone? Because that's a key point. Is that clear to you, Jordan? Yeah, it is. Um, and I, yeah, I guess with more, we'll, we'll practice the mindfulness that will come, like you say, they'll come clearer and I'll be able to notice the difference, the changing between focusing on my breath to, to the other thought. Yes. And that, what you're going to be learning next week relates directly to that. The four foundations of mindfulness, the Satipatthana Sutta, and the Buddha teaches those same foundations and many other suttas. That's the primary one. Uh, it, it teaches us in the beginning of it what to do with feelings and thoughts. And what the Buddha teaches to do is to let them arise and pass away. Nothing else. We are so enamored, and, and, and I would say we're, we're so attached to our feelings and thoughts that we have a very difficult time doing that. And we think that there's some value in analyzing a feeling or a thought or where did it come from and who's to blame for this. That's just constant distraction. If we want to live our life right here and right now, we simply are observing what's occurring from a well-concentrated mind, seeing things through right view. And that, again, that's something that we'll continue to develop. So, thank you, Jordan. Thanks. Julian, how are you? Hi, Jordan. I'm great, thanks. Um, I don't have much to say, I think, as I haven't been able to read the first two chapters. Um, maybe just that I'm really glad to have this practice. I'm, I haven't been practicing a lot um, focused these two last weeks because I went home to my family to Switzerland and uh, I was like just you know, enjoying time with them. Um, but still managed to every morning when I wake up just have a seat. I don't even check time. I just have a seat of some quiet time on my own Good. and I can um, sense the urge kind of or this feeling of um, having more and more time just for myself and sitting and some um, quietness actually just yeah. I think it's a really nice word quietness and enjoying that a lot yeah Good for you. Um, so on the on the uh, on our website, becoming-buddha.com, there are recorded guided meditations like we just did from five to forty-five minutes. So I encourage you to listen to those 
um, the guided meditations during your practice, during your the your, your taking of this Dhamma study. Uh, the, the, again, the verbiage that's used there relates directly to the four foundations of mindfulness that you'll be studying this coming week. So, Maura, how about you? Oh, hi, John. Um, I don't know. I guess the, the uh, one thing that I read, um, I have circled this paragraph because it's very simple, but it... Also, um, to me, it just sums up so much. Um, and I don't know why reading it just hit me <laughs> again. But, um, so the paragraph was preoccupation with any thoughts or thought constructs creates additional stress and continues a distracted mind state, which we all know. Expecting, uh, I guess it's really the second paragraph here, expecting that which is inherently impermanent, including ourselves to somehow become permanent, creates additional stress and continues a distracted mind state. It's not really that one. It was the second little one. Thoughts. Um, which seek to establish and perpetuate an ego self will continue to create unhappiness and stress. So I think that's the whole point, right? Just yeah. Thoughts which seek to establish and perpetuate an ego self will continue to create unhappiness and stress, period. Yeah. So that, um, it's just uh, that that has been, just kind of rattling around in my thoughts, <laughs> but uh, um, I, and you know, Don, I've been around for a long time with this, so it's not like I'm not aware. But I always, I, I guess, my own life and practice, it's um, the ever deepening and widening realization of some of the subtleties of this. Yeah practice and um so i've been really just watching the besides you you know the watching of the coming arising and passing and letting go but just kind of just curious about that piece of identifying and all its many many flavors of self that are so subtle um but is of course it's there the the the, we want something more you know in the meditation practice itself there's can be i know for me this subtle energy of um, some dissatisfaction with what, even from moment to moment sometimes in meditation, mm. you know, this one I like, this pleasant feeling is here, and well, could it just hang around, or isn't this nice? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? and so you learn in the four foundations of mindfulness that even that is something to be dismissed and come back to your breath. Of course, yeah. of course. But seeing that process unfold and 
the dukkha that results is just, um, and, and the impersonal nature of that um, is, is just, um, I wouldn't say that, you know, like I get stuck on like, it's not an analyzing, it's just an, a deepening awareness of how insidious that is. And you said something today, and I'm just having trouble writing it down, but um, why is that? Why stomach hacked oh from that I can't I I I don't have the right words for it, but um again it's based just um I think the question comes I understand it intellectually, am I is so I don't have a question, but I think living question of somebody else spoke to it um, until you know a, f a firm practice is firmly established it's still there's still um, this question of uh, what um, Sorry, I'm taking a lot of okay. time, but like, ooh, um, I'm kind of lost my train of thought there, but um, it, more of the, I, I think I just see it all in, in daily life too, just this constant, um, you know, just this this wanting things to be better or different or holding yeah. on to wanting this thing to continue and that thing to go away and you know and um so i'm i've been aware of that for a long time and one can take that all in personally <clears throat> it's just anyway it, it just it, it goes on all the time yeah you know it just goes but on what you're and describing in a general way Maura, is wanting what's occurring in this moment to be different than it is and that is that ongoing process of disappointment isn't it but mm -hmm. we, we can only be disappointed when we judge something as disappointing in other words disappointment doesn't occur it, it's something that we manufacture within ourselves and when we stop taking things personally this is not me this is not mine this is not what i am then there's no reason there's no cause for disappointment is there it's just simply life as life occurs. It doesn't mean that that moments will arise that in a in a broad sense we could say, well, I wish this was different and I wish that was different. But in a realistic sense, we understand that nothing can be different than it is because it's already occurred. That's that's what it means to be a, a an awakened, fully mature human being. You know, the, the the statement "Why cry over spilt milk" relates to that, doesn't it? Because the milk is already spilt. So then the question. And the immediate question then becomes, okay, what am I going to do in this moment now that I'm not distracted? In this moment, I'm going to practice right view and understand what it means to be a human being. That's that's the Buddha's Dhamma. That's the brilliance of what he discovered. And it's also what you're describing. You know, and in, in, in when we when our meditation practice isn't quite pure, when and for most of us it's not, there'll be times when it seems disappointing because there's nothing generating within that meditation practice. There's nothing that makes me feel good until I remember, wait a minute, 
That's a thought attached to a feeling. Let me come back to my breath and deepen my concentration. That's all. Well, I mean, my, my meditation practice is actually quite joyful. It's, um, you know, but you can see where, or if it's, there's periods of neutralness where, you know, the mind, it seems to me that's when they're also, you know, the mind tends to spin off looking for things to establish itself or the, the, um, the sankaras tend to, you know, these conditioned mind wants to yeah. find itself and reestablish itself. So it's, um, it's enjoying some of those times. And then just, I guess the last thing I would say, because it's very, very, it's, it's subtle in that it's also just, it's so much a wanting of a state to continue, right? Yeah. You know, I'm, I am like an addict, you know, a fabricated like state. Yes, Pardon? a fabricated state. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Which is always painful. Yep, and so there, it's um, it's not, you know, the, the discomfort, it's it's just always looking for this place of comfort, yeah. you know, of, of that, which is, is such a, um, you know, innocent but <laughs> ignorant way of living. Yeah. <laughs> Well, another word for that for that for for dukkha would be discontent, wouldn't it? Because that's what it is. And it's be, when we become discontented with what's occurring, we start grasping after something that will bring us contentment. And what the Buddha realized that the only way to develop contentment is from radical acceptance of what's occurring, because of impermanence, because everything changes. I might get my brand new Ferrari tomorrow morning, but tomorrow afternoon the tree might fall on it. You know, and if, if everything in my being is caught up in having a brand new Ferrari and the tree falls on it, where am I? But if I'm not caught up in the brand new Ferrari, even if there's one parked out in front of my house and the tree falls on it, it doesn't matter, does it? I, my life continues. My, the quality of my mind continues is really what I should say. And that's the point of the Buddha's Dhamma. Everything changes. We, we, there, we have no control over what's occurring in the world. But we do have complete control of how we view what's occurring in the world. That's called right view. And that's what you're describing more. So thank you. Uh, I'm just going to end, I promise, on that it's, it's usually not the big Ferrari that I'm looking for. It's to, to get away from some mm. physical discomfort, some restlessness in the mind, yep. some um, you know, perceived state of hunger, you know, that's really just some irritability. Yeah. You know, these are these very, very boring, banal things. No, but you're, you're right. It's, I, I'm, I'm using the, the, the idea of a Ferrari to make a point, but it's really the... It's the it's the the little subtle thoughts that that nag at us and gnaw at us that is a real problem, but again that's that is resolved through concentration and right view. But, yeah, thank you, more. I'm glad you joined us today, Henrietta. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Yourself? Uh, thank you for asking. I'm doing okay. <laughs> <laughs> so um, with my practice, um, I'm actually doing much better so uh today for instance i managed around 10 mark 10 minutes mark and then the doorbell rang and everything so i became very aware of everything around me yeah um uh, uh i had a bit of a question which was around the statement of not taking life personally or something like that i think you sort of answered that when mark um, ask a question um, but to me it makes sense in theory but it is very abstract so I can't fully understand it yeah it, 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 
again, you bring up a, a, a really important point. Everything that we learn, if, if I was teaching you how to change the oil in your car, the teaching is abstract and conceptual, isn't it? It doesn't become real until you actually do it. And the Buddha's Dhamma is the same way. Uh, as human beings, we learn first in the abstract and the conceptual. But the brilliance of the Buddha's Dhamma is now you can actually experience what we're talking about. And you will continue to experience it. Uh, it, it, it you know, it, not to throw the word out, but I guarantee it. If, if I've never met anybody who didn't continue with the Buddha's Dhamma that didn't experience the Buddha's Dhamma. Because it's pure, it's simple, and it's direct. So you'll you'll will have these experiences where they won't seem uh, in the abstract. There's a uh, right, right on the the uh, homepage of the website is a link to the Bahia Sutta right on the right on the top of it, and I, I encourage you to read that because in, it's a sutta where uh, this gentleman Bahia, who who was concerned about his own death, meaning he understood impermanence to that point that the next moment he he could be dead. And he came across the Buddha and he pleaded with the Buddha to teach me the Dhamma. He, the words were, teach me the Dhamma for my long-term benefit. And then he explained why, where his urgency was. And the Buddha was, was out collecting alms at the time. And he put him off three times. He says, not now, I'm out collecting alms. I'm, collecting, uh, I'm out gathering food for myself. And finally, the Buddha relented and he taught him the Dhamma in just a few sentences. And, and I won't give you the whole sutta, but basically he said, in what is seen, there is only the seen. And what is heard, there is only the heard. And what is cognized, there is only the cognize. What he, Buddha was teaching Bahia is that whatever is occurring, don't take it personally. And what is it, whatever is arising in your life, Henrietta, remind yourself, just to get, put this mantra, even though I don't teach mantra meditation, in your head. If you're reacting to something, remind yourself, this is not me. This is not mine. This is not what I am. And you'll, you'll very quickly and very effectively start disentangling yourself from the things that would cause you stress. And, and again, that that's the Buddha's Dhamma applied in a very practical way. So I hope you find that helpful. I'm glad you joined us today. Did, 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 did I help clarify that for you? Ish. I, <laughs> I think it's one that I'm going to like have to spend more time with. Yeah. Again, it, it really is just about... I might... I, I might keep asking you questions around that again I, ho I hope you do because that's what this is all about um your your question and everybody else's question leads to this great discussion it's one of the things that is so vital about our sangha is that we're able to do this we, we can ask insightful questions because they're based on something that's in the dhamma which you did so you're learning the dhamma as it's intended uh be very gentle with yourself if you continue with what you're doing and i think you will You'll, you'll answer your own questions through your own experience. But always, please feel free to always ask me any questions. And it doesn't mean even in session. If something comes up when we're not having a meeting, send me an email. And, and I'll be happy to answer it for you. So I'm glad you joined us, Henrietta. Hello, Josh. Hey, John. Thank you. Hi, everybody. I've really uh, enjoyed what everybody's had to say. Yeah. And if you're uh, feeling uh, confused and that you're not getting it, you're not alone. Uh, I've been at this about nine months now, and, I, and I'm still very confused, and I, and I still feel like I don't really get very much of it. But I can tell you from personal experience, 
for some reason, my life is calmer now. And uh, So you are getting something out of it. I'm getting something out of it. And uh, my meditation practice is kind of uh, weird. I, uh, over the past month or so, I kind of wake up in the middle of the night. I have a little bit of, it's not really insomnia. I go to bed early and I, I may wake up at four or five o'clock in the morning and I get up and now I go and I, and I sit and I try to meditate then for 15 or 20 minutes. And then I go back to bed. And then I get up and I get involved in the day and all the distractions that are going on in my life. And then I'm getting ready to go to bed and I remember I didn't, I didn't meditate for the second time today. So I go find a little quiet spot before I go to bed and I sit down and I try to get three or four minutes to get my mind out again before I go to bed and um, distracted. So even despite the fact that I'm not doing it probably the right way, it's just my uh, I'm getting benefit out of it. And the thing I got out of the reading the chapter this time was, and I really like what Jordan had to say, is I can recognize thoughts flowing and, and uh, feelings arising, uh, feelings flowing. But, I, but I, usually when I meditate, I'm, I try to concentrate on my breathing, and then the next thing I know, there I go again. I'm off building a boat or uh, <laughs> wishing this hadn't happened or that had happened. And, uh, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting to the point where I can see the arising of my uh, thoughts. Mm. I thought that was very, very good. Yeah, but it, it, and Josh, it, just the way you're describing that shows that the, the, the Dhamma is working. You've incorporated it because you have that right view. It, the, the Being a, a wise Dhamma practitioner doesn't mean that we never get distracted by our thoughts or our feelings. It means that we recognize when we're distracted by our thoughts and our feelings. And that's what you're describing. And we use that simple method once we realize it, that we've lost our mind again. We simply take a breath, unite our mind and our body. And live in this moment, whatever is occurring. So, thank you, Josh. Well, the part I really got out of the, the lesson was, and I wanted to say briefly, was this thing where my mind is off running on its own. When I returned to, to breathing, the purpose of that I got out of the chapter was to start breaking up these conditioned thinking yes. recordings. Yep. And every time I do that, it's learning a different way of calming down and getting out of conditioned thinking. And then I, and then I have to kind of start sorting out, which is a different topic altogether. But what's appropriate to think about and what's not. But but uh, uh, that's for another time. Yeah. It, it, thank you, Josh. You, 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 again, you bring up such an important point. It, meditation, jhana meditation, right meditation, interrupts conditioned thinking. That's what it does. Every time we come back, 
We recognize that we're caught up in our thoughts or our feelings and come back to the breath. We're interrupting conditioned thinking. And that's how it works directly towards towards ending that conditioned way of thinking. We don't realize it. I mean, most, of our, um, most of our thoughts, certainly pre-Dhamma, are, are just rote thoughts. They're, it's, a, it's a running dialogue in our mind that we're not even aware of until we start looking at it. And then we can then when we start looking at it through the right method, then we can interrupt that way of thinking. And as we change the way that we think, this makes sense, doesn't it? As we change the way that we think, we change our experience of our life. That's what the Buddha discovered. So right view could also be called right thinking or wrong view, wrong thinking. How I think about myself in relation to the world will determine my experience of this moment. And if that view is resting in right view, meaning a full understanding of what it means to be a human being, then this moment will not have any, even a, even a possibility of incurring stress on me. It'll simply be another peaceful moment, no matter what's occurring. That peaceful moment could be the, the, the house next door blew up, but because I'm not reacting, again, I'm using a, a you know kind of a ridiculous example, but because my mind is no longer reacting to it, I maintain a calm and peaceful mind, and I'm better able to, in that scenario, help the community because I haven't lost my mind. But on a very much more subtle level, as we do this in our practice, it's not so much the house next door that blew up. It's that there's no longer any explosions in our own mind. And I know you've heard me say this often. If we really want to end conflict in the world, in our own world, I'm not talking about world wars, in our own world, in our own community, if we really want to end conflict, we have to first end conflict in our mind. And then, no matter what occurs, is calm and peaceful, even if it's not in an outwardly way. And that's, again, that's what you're describing. You're coming to that realization, Josh. You're recognizing the things that are provoking you towards stress so that you now have the ability to simply let them go. So, thank you. Alex, how are you? Hi John. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good, thanks. Um, really enjoying the discussion actually. Well, to be honest, I've had a really long day at work and I had a bit of a headache and I was, wasn't sure if I'd attend, but um, I decided to log on and uh, yeah, I'm really glad I did. There were some really great questions that I could, um, you know, that I got a lot from as well, so thanks, thanks guys. Um, my, my only one at the moment is... Um, uh, coming from my like Christmas New Year break, I uh, went on a. I attended an online Tri Ratna retreat. Uh-huh. Um, you know, just something to do, I, I guess. And, and in my mind, I, I feel like I can approach these things um, and take what I want from them. I suppose. So I guess my question to you, because I, I can't deny, and that's why I'm pleased to be back here, and I think that's why I wanted to come because this just simplifies it for me so much. Um, I can't deny I left, you know, with my head spinning a bit. And um, as, as much as I want to ignore some of the things that make my head spin, I'm still intrigued by them. Um, so I guess what my question to you, John, is whether you shut the door completely on, because there are modern day Buddhist practices and, and the mm-hmm. stuff that you spoke about um, and that you, I know you've explored. Do you... Do you shut them out completely or do you, how do you respond to them now? Because they're still in, you know, modern day culture and you're going to come across them. So 
Thank you for the for the question, Alex. It, and it is an important question, I, I think, especially because of the, the the position I've carved out for myself in this life. Um, so I don't mean to denigrate anything at all, whether it's called a Buddhist religion or a Buddhist practice or a Christian practice or a Jewish practice or a Muslim practice. But to me, they're all the same thing. And they... They have no more relevancy towards my, my awakening as if I went to, more is going to probably jump out of her seat when I say this. It has no more meaning to me as if so I was going bowling on Thursday night. So and what I'm saying is that it, it's, a, it's a pleasant and um, or can be a pleasant practice, a, uh, a, a non-hurtful practice, something to engage in, even a hobby, if you will. But it has no bearing at all on what the Buddha taught. And that's what I've found. That's what I've discovered. I spent many, many years uh, as a Buddhist practitioner getting more and more confused and more and more frustrated every single day of that practice. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm thinking more would remember this too. I remember sitting with a group of 150 meditators up in just outside of Woodstock, New York. Wonderful people. But yeah. in my mind, completely deluded, especially the teaching because it had nothing to do with what the Buddha taught. And when I finally came across what the Buddha actually taught, and it actually had an impact on my, my life, meaning it changed the way that I thought, then I knew I had something. So again, I'm not, I'm not putting down Triratna or any modern teacher or any modern practice. What I am saying is that I've never come across anything as pure as what the Buddha taught as preserved in the Sutta Pitaka. And it's just that way, you know. I, I know for some people it could sound awful arrogant. Like, who does this guy think he is to say he's the only one that knows what the Buddha taught? I don't feel that way. But I, I will say that I think I'm the only one that came across what the Buddha actually taught. Because nobody else is teaching it. It's just, again, it's a practical way. I don't care to be the, let me say this another way. I would love to come across another thousand people like me. I really would. And maybe, and, and there's a possibility with our Sangha, you know, we, we've already trained uh, four new teachers, and really there's a fifth one, I think he's left already, um, that, we're, that are going to continue teaching the Buddha's Dhamma. Um, and, and, and then bringing this a little bit back to the, to the course we're taking, the Dhamma study, Alex, whatever your practice is right now, if you really want to discover what the Buddha actually taught and experience it, I would just focus on this for, for the Dhamma study. The other Buddhist practices will still be out there in, in nine more weeks. But if you really, and, and again, I'm saying this from my own experience. I couldn't figure this out. It, 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 Buddhism made absolutely no sense to me until I practiced, until I discovered and then practiced only what the Buddha taught. So my ongoing practice now is, is just what the Buddha taught. I don't, I just gave away three or four hundred books that were on different phases of Zen Buddhism and other Mahayana Buddhism. And the reason why I gave them away rather than bring them into our center for other people to read is they were only a distraction to me. That's all. So there's no value in that. So there's my answer, Alex, but I'm not telling you to don't do anything that you're inclined to do. But for the course of the Dhamma study, I would just say keep it focused on this. Yeah. No, it's, it's a great answer. Thank, thank yes. you. It, I think for me, it's the Sangha that, like you say, they're great people sometimes, and I like to just keep in, keep connected to them. But at the same time, I want to keep yeah. my path, you know, mine. Um, yeah. I know your teachings do do hit me. You know, the simplicity 
not that it's something simple that you're teaching, but you do it in a way that it's um, easier to follow, I think. And everybody I see on your, in your sangha say that. Um, so it's remarkable. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 yeah, the, the, I mean, all of you, the, the, all of you that continue with this Dhamma study will develop it. I mean, it, it, it is, you know, I, I made the reference to changing the oil. I could be giving a 10 week course on car maintenance. And if you stayed with each course, with each class, you'd learn something about car maintenance. Yeah. Attending this course, you're going to learn what the Buddha taught. That's what I teach. And one of the reasons why I teach in this way is I learned it from how the Buddha taught. He never, in, he never brought anything else into his uh, Dhamma talks. He only talked about the Dhamma. Even though, and you could, if you read some of the suttas, you'll see that, that members of the Sangha tried to bring other things into it. And he always said, no, no, no. We practice the Dhamma here. And that's, that's all we're going to be doing here, by the way, on Thursday afternoons. You're free to do anything else you want. And you're free to incorporate any other practice that you want and call it your own. But what I will tell you is if you want to develop what the Buddha taught, you'll focus only on that. Because to me, that's the only way it can be developed. As soon as we add something, in other words, we take um, a different meditation method because we like it better. Well, now we're no longer doing jhana meditation, are we? And so the Buddha didn't teach a sevenfold path. He taught an eightfold path. And so there is some strictures, some guidelines that we have to follow. And again, that's how I teach it. If you want to learn it, this is the path we do. If you don't, it's okay too. There's no, there's nothing that says we have to do this. If you come back to me next Thursday and say, guess what? I've been practicing jumping on a pogo stick for a week as my meditation practice. I'll tell you, good for you. And if you want to learn what the Buddha taught, you'll do jhana meditation instead of that. It's just that yeah. way. So. No, that's great. Yeah. Thanks, Thank you. Thank you. Uh, ah, I got to put this thing on again so I can see who's there. Yeah, Jordan, did we talk to you yet? I don't remember. I'm sorry. Thank you, Jordan. <laughs> and uh, Tom, but not Tom. That's the other essence of Tom? Instance of Tom? Tom, how are you? There's only one Tom. The other Tom oh, okay. What do you have to say for yourself? Yeah, I won't, I won't, I won't say much this week. Because, um, um, yeah, I've spoken a lot in the past. Um, but I, yeah, I just think, I think um, maybe touching a bit on what Henrietta said, I mean, this idea of not taking things personally is, I've, I've noticed it to be the source of, of genuine peace, yeah. a real yeah. opportunity to appreciate life as it is. Isn't that um, remarkable? That, that simple thing it's, of not, it's, yes. It's truly remarkable. It's yeah. just, to, to give the, the other side, we, we, we live our entire lives, um, based on what we want out of it, right? We're taught from the very moment that we uh, are conscious of like, I want this, and yep. if I get this, I'll be happy. And everything we do is personalized. And that's a fabrication like, to weather. begin with. Exactly. Yep. But it's quite disconcerting, right? When, and that's why I think the teachings are quite, um, uh, you know, they, they are quite disconcerting as well, right? They're quite, they're quite because, because you're, you're being confronted with something which is yeah. not how you thought your life, you know, you built your life around the sense of I and what I will get. And, and that was my source of happiness. Right? Yeah. And we're taught that's what we should be doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, exactly. the, the world is built in a way that would, that insists that we take everything personally. Yeah, 
Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. that's quite. It's it's something I get intellectually now, but I'm still incredibly, incredibly difficult to um to apply it. Um, but every little gain, every little win is um is uh just l- letting go of it's all yeah letting go of that of that yeah. attachment right to and, and it, every little bit helps I guess is what I would say. Yeah. Just, uh, it, it does get easier over time actually. I've noticed that the last. Um, Especially the last year, um, but yeah, it's just um, it's it's uh, yeah, it's, it, it, it's a lot to take on sometimes. Yeah, it, or to take in, let's say. But uh, that's all from me. Th- thank you, Tom. Again, it, it it it's a gradual process. There's nothing that the Buddha teaches that a human being cannot understand and integrate in their life. But it is so challenging, and it does take it does take time. It takes it takes a practice. Uh, you you remind me of one of the sections in the Dhammapada where the Buddha says where there's no repetition, there's no Dhamma. And so this is very repetitive. You're going to, those that continue, you're going to hear me say the same things basically week after week because that's how we learn the Dhamma. But that's how the Buddha taught the Dhamma. The, the, the Buddha really only taught one subject, but he taught it in so many different ways that are all um, situational to what was occurring in front of the Buddha at the time. In other words, he taught Four Noble Truths in different suttas and in slightly different ways. He taught dependent origination in hundreds of different suttas, not just the, the, the primary one, but those are the foundations of what he taught. And once we understand that, we can apply it. So thank you, Tom. Michael, how are you? Uh, hi, John. Hi, everybody. Quite a stimulating uh, conversation going on here. Yeah. I try to, try to uh, uh, join in on this. Uh, I like what Tom was saying there. Uh, and Tom, I really believe uh, you are actually have a good sense of, of what is really going on here. Um, what occurs uh, or what we're not aware of uh, is our own self-reference in anything and everything we do. Um, if we can be aware of that self-reference and uh, recognize uh, when we are, Referencing, referencing that which is pleasurable or painful to ourselves, it's it's then it's then that we understand that self-reference is actually feeding the ego self. Yeah. Okay, and uh, you'll hear many times John says, "and we have lost our mind." Well, when we go into a, a mode of self-referencing life as it occurs to us, then we have lost our mind, and we are not in the present moment. Okay. Yeah. Um, as uh, the, you know, this first chapter talks about meditation uh, and uh, deepening concentration, and meditation and deepening concentration gives us or refines that ability for us to recognize those moments of self-reference. And yes, they can be extremely subtle moments that, like you know, we we don't, we don't like even pick up on. But be be aware of this and. When we are self-referential, and if we we, we approach uh, each moment from that uh, perspective of being self-referential, what's good for me, what I'm going to do, uh, and we get it, we become entangled. We become entangled with all those thoughts that are in our minds, yeah. and that's where we get lost in in the, the thicket. There, we're just entangled. And we can't find our peace of mind. Yeah. But if we take ourself out of that and realize that life is going to occur as life occurs, and then we we uh, 
the concentration that we've been developing in jhana enables to stay out of those weeds, stay out of that thicket, and be here in this present moment. Because that whole concept of living in the present moment is not an easy one to, uh, to uh, 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 understand. But I, I'm pretty sure, like, when you empty, when you recognize your entanglements and just say to yourself, hey, you know, I'm going to put the brakes on here and I'm not going to let my mind run away with all these thoughts in my head. You're going to feel more peace and calm. And Tom, I think that's what you were saying there. It's like when you subtract yourself from that, those thoughts, that entanglement, that your, your clarity comes into mind and you're able to see things and discern things for what they truly are. Mm. And I think that's, uh, I think we're off on, on a, uh, in a good place. It seems like the, the class is understanding, understanding those entanglements and recognizing them. And that's a, that's a place to go forward from here, I think. Mm. So that's basically what I got out of uh, the first chapter. Thank you, Michael. Well said. Um, did I did I get to everyone? Please uh, speak up if I if I didn't call on you. I think I did. I, I didn't say anything. Oh, I'm sorry, Joe. Please. Um. Yeah, I guess I was half hoping that session would end. <laughs> well, you, no, nobody has to talk either. But I, I'd love to hear what you have to say. Yeah, just I guess a couple of things. So I've been I've been meditating for about nine or ten months, and um, mostly what's described here in the, in the reading, which I guess is good. Although I've experimented with some other things, um, and um, but it was really good to read this description. It really helped me, I guess, understand the yeah. purpose. And um, you know, when it talked about calming the mind and then insights arising, I, I thought, oh, I think I've actually experienced some of that in, in the last um, 10 months, and it's kind of cool. Mm. Um, the, the thing that I guess I struggle with, and I, I, I know I'm not alone, but I, I feel like maybe I'm alone in the extreme nature of it, is the thing about, you know, um, that we all have these thoughts that flow. You know, we're human, so the goal is not for thoughts not to flow. Thought, thoughts are going to flow. I, I feel compelled to just say, like, yeah, I don't know that you really understand what's going on in this head. Like, the, the extreme nature of the ruckus that is constantly occurring in, in my mind. Um, mm -hmm. yep. it's, um, it's, been, it's been interesting becoming acquainted with that and, and seeing the difference between a calm mind and um, I, I think what's been for most of my life more what's going on in my mind, which is just, it's almost like a comedy of like endless um, thicket, you know, I mean, yeah. it's really, it's really interesting to become acquainted with that. Um, but I'm, I, so I'm still struggling with that in meditation a little bit and, and I guess struggling with I guess a, a version of acceptance that I guess that's supposed to be the way that it is, and maybe it'll ease over time. But right now, I, I just kind of want to sit down and in five seconds achieve some sort of peaceful state of mind that lasts for twenty minutes and for that three meditation. And um, that's that's far from what occurs for me. And and for most people, Joe, I mean, I, we even have terms for it, like monkey mind is a common term today, and it's common because everybody has monkey mind until you do something about it. Or most people, anyway, I should make a blanket statement. And um, so you're you're learning how to how to end that monkey mind, 
that is so disturbing. But you're also learning that it's much more than just meditation. And, and we, we also learn how to view a meditation practice. Rather than, I'm going to go sit because I've had such an awful day and I want to find some peace, I'm going to meditate because I want to deepen my concentration. That's two completely different points of view, but the one is the proper view, the right view. The other is a wrong view. It's a view that's looking for an escape in meditation. But again, this is not something everybody has to adopt immediately. But as you continue the practice, you'll start seeing jhana meditation for what it really is, a true refuge, because I use it for deepening concentration and not to escape how I'm feeling or how I'm thinking. So even in the, in the verbiage, we, we talk about this. Feelings arise and thoughts flow. We're sensitive and conscious beings. Thoughts are supposed to be flowing. The only way that we can, I used to say this when I first started teaching, the only way to stop, go back just a little bit, the point of meditation is to not stop thinking. That's impossible. The only way to do that is to chop off your head, and I don't recommend it. That's a joke I used to tell. I don't tell it often because it's not that funny. But we're, we're, our thoughts, our, our brains are meant to be always processing energy. And in our brains, that energy is called thoughts. An awake and fully mature human being is no longer distracted by those thoughts. They have control over what's going on in their, in their mind, but also going on in their body. But that's what we're all talking about. That's what we're learning. And another point, because a few of you talked about it, um, Ananda, who was the Buddha's cousin and with the Buddha for nearly everything he ever taught and, and for every teaching for the last 25 years of his life, after, asked his cousin Siddhartha this question one time. He says, cuz, I don't know what he called him, cuz. He said, what's the most important part of the Dhamma? And the Buddha responded, the most important part of my Dhamma is a well-informed and well-focused Sangha. None of us can do it without what we have here. And I will tell you that um, this is a remarkable Sangha. Between the ones that are joining us from our Tuesday and Saturday classes and those that are joining us, we'll just call it international, you all have, a, have a, an understanding of the Dhamma that will prove to be a really... Uh, a powerful foundation. And all that you need to do to experience a continued calm and peaceful mind is to continue with your Dhamma practice. So I encourage you to keep doing it. Uh, please feel free to contact me anytime with any questions you have. Uh, we're, for, so for next week, excuse me, those that are taking the course on Thursday, uh, I'm saying that because we're going to be starting the Truth of Happiness Dhamma study for our Tuesday and Saturday classes as well. But uh, for the Thursday, for next Thursday's class, read the second chapter, excuse me, on the four foundations of mindfulness. And write a paragraph or two about what you learned about it, maybe what you found um, unexpected, but also how what you're learning chapter by chapter is informing what you learned previously. So in other words, I'd like to hear how your understanding of how the four foundations of mindfulness relates to jhana meditation. So we'll talk about that next week. Uh, be, uh, tomorrow night, uh, Friday at 7, I think, and all this info is on the website too, by the way. Let me go back a little bit. I'll put this talk on the Truth of Happiness Dhamma Study uh, page uh, later on today or tomorrow, so you can always come back to it. Um, Beginning Friday at 7 o'clock, we're having a, an Eightfold Path uh, online retreat uh, to start the year. This, again, the schedule is on the website, and I encourage you to join us. Uh, beginning next Tuesday, we're going to start the Truth to Happiness Dhamma study on our Tuesday and uh, Saturday classes, too. So, 
Does anybody have any other questions or comments before we finish? I just, uh, yeah, uh, some people may have already read chapter two um, from our, so sorry if I, I got you a bit ahead of, um, ahead of speed. Oh, that's, that, that, that's fine. You know, just, you can, yeah. you can reread it. <laughs> yeah, can I mean, it's brilliant it. writing, so you might as well read it again. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and that and that's how the 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 course will progress. So, um, yeah. All right. Well, we're gonna finish with that. Uh, I finish almost every class with uh, an offering of meta, and this is this is uh, meta means loving kindness, but this it's also very focused. It's not. Eh, I don't want to get too deep into it. This is from the Karaniya Meta Sutta, the Buddha's words. Um, so again, take a moment to become mindful of your in breath and your out breath. Settle your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing, in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, <clears throat> outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class today. Peace. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.